This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. I like a bed that's really firm. I need something a little softer than that. Rest easy. With the Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed, you can both adjust your comfort with your Sleep Number setting. Can it really help me fall asleep faster? Yes, by gently warming your feet. Okay, but can it help keep us asleep? It senses your movements and automatically adjusts to keep you effortlessly comfortable. Sleep Number, proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. It's our biggest sale of the year where all beds are on sale. Save 50% on the Sleep Number 360 Limited Edition Smart Bed. Only for a limited time. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Are we on? Are we going? Welcome to The Way I See It with me, Alastair Souk. The series in which we throw open the collection at MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art in New York, to some of the sharpest creative minds of our time. Each of our guests has chosen a piece that inspires or provokes them, surprises or thrills. And they'll be telling us why they see it the way they do. The scale alone surprised people that there was somebody with that kind of ambition and that kind of sustained energy. In this episode, the awe-inspiring sculptor Richard Serra, whose monumental work has already featured in this series as chosen by his friend, the avant-garde American composer Steve Reich, picks something similarly awe-inspiring. I think it changed the idea of American painting. Surprisingly, perhaps, Richard has chosen not a sculpture, but a painting. And what a painting! A whopper of a work of art, more than 17 feet across, by one of the greats of mid-century American art. A notorious brawler and boozer, an alpha male figurehead for downtown New York's bohemian avant-garde, whose powerful, unprecedented new techniques roused tempers and raised whirlwinds as people tried to come to terms with his radical vision. This episode, then, is about creative audacity and courage, and a new approach to painting so original that its clout, if you like, still feels almost palpable, even today. You can't frame this painting with one look. There's no central look in the painting. Your gaze doesn't allow for it. In fact, at certain points you become overcome with looking at it and you have to look away because it's just so complex in its reading that you don't know where to fix your eye. When I stood in front of the painting recently, inside the Museum of Modern Art, I felt almost as if it was about to swallow me up. It engulfs you. It's so immersive and dynamic and energetic, even though this was painted, what, nearly 70 years ago. But before I am engulfed, I should probably point out that this isn't a painting in any conventional, realistic, figurative sense, you know, offering a window onto a world that we all would recognise, but an abstract work of art created seemingly in a fit of frenzy. It's 17 feet or so across, you know, 8 feet high, and it's covered with all of these flicks and drips and poured elements of paint. At first, it looks like a tangled web spun from whiplashed streaks of black and white. But look closer and you discover other subtler colours too. Ochre, tan, turquoise, blue and greeny-grey. And the whole thing has this explosive force. And of course, because we're not looking at something specific, there isn't one place for your eye to rest. You're taken all over the composition. Just as Richard said at the start, you don't know where to fix your eye when looking at this all-over art. 
The painting's title is 1, number 31, 1950. That's the title. And it's by probably the most famous, or perhaps that should be infamous, artist associated with the American movement known as Abstract Expressionism. And when he produced it, he was working at the height of his Herculean powers. You know, this is one of the most mythical figures of American art of the 20th century, this hard, brawling, boozing artist who's seen in film footage with paint-spattered boots, a fag hanging out of his mouth. You know, a tough, tough guy. He is Jackson Pollock, one of the first figures anyone with even the mildest interest in modern art learns about. In 1945, after years spent working in poverty and obscurity, surrounded by serious-minded avant-garde artists in Greenwich Village, New York... Pollock moved with his wife, the painter Lee Krasner, to a 19th-century clapboard farmhouse in East Hampton on Long Island. And a couple of years later, at the very moment when, in the aftermath of the Second World War, America was consolidating its position as the world's self-confident new superpower, Pollock, while working away in the barn that he'd co-opted as a studio so he could paint on a large scale, invented his so-called pouring technique. It swiftly won him celebrity as Jack the Dripper. Is he the greatest living painter in the United States? asked Life magazine in 1949. And Pollock became the standard bearer for a new, vigorous art movement, ripping away all the energy and power from Europe to New York. The notion that this was hysterical, expressionist, continual pouring forth of some activity doesn't bear out an analysis of the painting. Richard seems to be saying something profoundly different, that this is a work with structure and forethought, not some sort of mad torrential splurge from Pollock's subconscious. A moment ago, when I described Richard as a sculptor, I didn't mean that he makes marble venuses or bronze statues upon pedestals. No, he's a, a bullish, ambitious man with a supple, intelligent mind who produces vast and, as I said at the start, awe-inspiring installations. There's really no better way of describing them. Out of the raw materials of heavy industry. Typically these days, sheets and plates of core 10 weathering steel. So somehow it felt appropriate that when he visited MoMA, out of hours when it was supposed to be quiet, to talk about 1, number 31, 1950 he found himself fighting against the sound of drilling as builders worked elsewhere on the museum's new extension. Let's just go. They're not going to stop. I'm sure he wouldn't have wanted it any other way. When you first look at it, you think this is a very crude, hysterical painting. When you stop and reconsider how it was done, you realise that, in fact, is not the case. Pollock's own words, and this is a quote, I don't use the accident, I deny the accident. I think the question arises... What overlaps what? The black appears to overlap the white, but then if you keep looking at it, the white appears to overlap the black. And then when you go up and look at it really closely, there's reversals that continuously happen. Every passage seems to be considered and reconsidered. That means he had to pause, he had to stop, he had to see what he was doing, had to assess of what he was up to. When you look at it from here, you don't see the blues, or you hardly see the blues, and you don't see the ochres. When you go up and look at a close reading of the painting, they give the painting another staccato pulsation. They really pop the painting in and out. But that's very, very hard to ascertain from about 20 feet. Now, Pollock had to know that. 
He had to know that if you make these little drops of blue and ochre, they're going to give the painting another kind of punch, another kind of pulsation. And they occur throughout the field, but from, from the distance you hardly read them. Which is all the more surprising when you consider how Pollock painted, because his novel Improvised Technique was nothing if not radical. Instead of using brushes to apply paint carefully in an ordered and considered fashion, he dripped the stuff from sticks and knives. He even used turkey basters. As well as pigment, he incorporated everyday detritus into his works. Nails, cigarette ends, coins, matches, pebbles, string, bits of broken glass. And rather than use an easel, and this bit is crucial, he placed his canvases upon the floor a truly revolutionary act that allowed him to move all the way around a painting while he was working on it, to be truly in it, as he put it, as he swayed and danced, allowing the pulsing rhythms of his body to dictate the way he applied paint. Essentially, he was painting in mid-air above the canvas. The whole thing was a performance, almost a magic act. And who in art history had done that? When you look at his finished work, it seems at first so wild. But in fact, as Richard Serra is suggesting, Pollock was capable of great subtlety, intricacy and refinement. If you watch Pollock paint, there's an obsessiveness and a physical activity that's hard to deny. Here you have a guy walking around the edge of a canvas on the floor, moving into and throughout the space of the painting, leaning as far into the painting as he can from all sides dealing with his bodily movement to anticipate where he was going to go next, pausing and then flinging and flickering the paint onto the canvas from above, never allowing the tool that he's using to touch the canvas. That in itself is completely radical. Nothing like that had happened in the history of painting prior or since. I think what happens in this painting is there's a complete obliteration of cubist space from Cezanne to Picasso to Matisse, in fact, from any other painter that had preceded him. You can't find a painting that doesn't deal with things that you can identify as such or objects that reduce themselves to shapes or spaces in places. This is a radical departure from everything that had come before, the terms of working around the painting and into the painting and leaning into the painting, with one exception. In, I think it was 1941... This museum had a show of Native American Indian art. And Pollock went several times, was completely fascinated by it, because what the Indians done, they had made sand paintings, and they had dribbled the paint from above, not touching the surface of the sand, and that had a profound influence on Pollock in terms of not only using traditional tools, but not touching this physical surface of the canvas. In fact, I find it astounding that painters were unable to do anything other than represent the image of Pollock, that they didn't find a way of extending what Pollock had done. I think it took another generation of sculptors to move into that field to understand that not only was Pollock involved with process, but he was also involved with the time of its making and the rhythm of his bodily movement through that time. So I think because of Pollock, the idea of moving into, through, and around a space became of multiple importance to all of us. Myself, uh, Eva Hess, uh, Nauman, the whole generation I came up with. 
Arts historians often group together that generation under the heading post-minimalism. But believe me, the work of these firebrands in America who in the late 60s were experimenting with surprising rough-and-ready everyday materials is much more exciting than that dreary academic term suggests. And Richard Serra was one of post-minimalism's pioneers. What really fascinates me is his observation that while Pollock proved strangely oppressive as an influence on younger painters... He liberated these sculptors, including Serra himself. Let's just say that I tried to learn from what he had done. I mean, you can't emulate or simulate somebody else's activity. When I came to making sculpture, I had to figure out what is it I could do that other people hadn't done, and how could I expunge myself from the traditional ways of making. So I experimented with all different kinds of material. At one point, I was pushing cement through a meat grinder and making things that look like cannolis. I think when you do things like that, you're confronting the whole history of what's come before. Confronting. Isn't that an intriguing word? There are so many ways of making art, but what I think Pollock and Sarah share, aside from raw talent, of course, is a certain attitude. Ambitious and daring, certainly. Pugnacious and quarrelsome, perhaps. Maybe in Pollock's case, a product of growing up as the youngest of five boys. And because of this questing competitive spirit, they're both unafraid of taking risks to discover something new. The thing I keep on feeling looking at it is he spoke about his desire to be in the painting. And that is what this communicates so effectively. You sense the record of the artist being in the painting when he was making it, but of course the result is that we, the viewer, are in it. You're drawn up close and suddenly you're in this great cosmic swirl and I think that still feels very, very vigorous, even though this is historical art now. This is something which belongs to the past on paper, but when you're with it, it feels so hugely part of the present. Is it any good? (laughs) I'm not sure I could live with it. Really energising and great to experience, but possibly just for a few minutes and then (laughs) then wander off and find something else. Thank you for listening. Discover more incredible works of modern art by searching for The Way I See It on BBC Sounds.